Keep your Bibles open there. That's our passage for this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, from verses 15 to verse 21. Um, I'm pretty sure you've heard about something called the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize, I think you've probably heard as the Nobel Prize. But the truth is that how you say it, it's novel. So just teaching you a little bit of pronunciation there. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard about the novel prize. But having said that, I, I doubt that many of us have heard who actually originated the novel prize. The truth is that Nobel Prize was named after a very famous Swedish chemist, engineer and inventor. He was a very successful, amongst many things, of course, chemist, uh, and, uh, but also a, um, a businessman. So he, he created many things, but he was very much involved in an industry of armaments. So he was making things, making weapons of warfare through his um, invention skills as well as his chemistry skills. Now, among the many things that he invented, he invented something that I'm sure you're very aware of. It's called dynamite. He is the guy who invented the dynamite. Now, he happened to be a very well-known person in the late 1800s, uh, but he had a very interesting experience. On the year of 1888, he happened to open the newspapers and read his own name in the obituary section. So he opened the newspapers and he read this. The merchant of death is dead. Now, I just need to time myself here so that I don't go too long. The, merchants, the merchant of death is dead. Now you can imagine the shock, right? You not only find out that you're supposed to be dead, but you find out that that how people know you, a merchant of death. Now, what happened after that? Of course, he, he wasn't dead. So that was a mistake. Who was dead was his brother who died. And then they thought it was him who had passed. So they, they, they published his name on the obituary, but he, he wasn't dead. But that, that was literally a wake-up call for him. It was a wake-up call because he found out that that's how people saw him. And he didn't want to be known as a merchant of death. He didn't want to have his very own name associated with death. Now, being a rich man, once he died, his will was basically, uh, not, not everything, but a big portion of it was directed to create the foundation of a, a foundation that would award a prize every year to a few categories of people who actually contribute to the flourishing of humankind. So that's how the Nobel Prize kicked off. Now, most people usually don't know that. They know everything about the Nobel Prize, but they don't know that we started with Alfred Nobel, and especially under those circumstances. But the truth is that that wake-up call did change his life. Nobel one day decided he wanted a different legacy from himself. He wanted not to have a legacy of death, 
but he wanted to have a legacy of life. I think I suppose the main question that I want to put out there for each one of us this morning is, what is the legacy that you are going to leave behind? So, I, I, not many of us were going to have the privilege that Noble had, which is to have a funeral when we're still alive and find out what people actually think of us in the process. But the truth is that we can do an exercise of investigating what's actually, how we're actually investing our days and time. Because the truth is the way how we invest every single day of our lives will count towards that legacy that's going to come out, come up at the end of our lives. So how are you investing your time, ensuring that that legacy that you want to have in the end is going to be achieved. Now, I believe that Ephesians has something to do with that. As i just been saying all over and over again, Ephesians are very much a foundational book with some foundational Christian doctrines for you to learn how to live your life. They're not just intellectual knowledge. They are intellectual knowledge that are supposed to give you a foundation on how to live. And the, the first half of the book, the first three chapters, is very much those theological thoughts that Paul starts to, to address and, and bring it to the congregation to help them see who they are. And then now, from, verse, from chapter 4 onwards, he starts to apply that. He starts to say, in the light of who you are, this is how you should live. Now, since the beginning of the second half, especially verse 17 of chapter 4, we've been on this journey where Paul has been saying how you should walk. That's the word he's been using. How you should live that new life as a follower of Jesus. But So today, I believe this portion of the scripture is a culmination of that. So all the way from chapter 4 to this portion of chapter 5, you have literally a culmination of everything that Paul has been saying, how you should live, summarized, could be seen along this particular four verses that we've just read. Now, I believe that's not just a summary of what Paul's just been saying, but I also believe it is a preparation for what he's going to say. So literally, this portion of the scripture we had sits in very much in a, much of a crossroad there. Everything converges to that, and the next few points that he's going to apply and preach comes out of that. So it's, pretty, it's a very significant portion of the scriptures there. So that's why, even though it is, we're just talking about a few verses there, I really thought I should take my time to address it because I believe Paul is not necessarily talking about legacy he doesn't use the words legacy in there necessarily but he is talking about how you use your time that it is given on this life and he's now telling you how you make that time count for God so he doesn't want you to have that terrible surprise that noble had at the end of his life well the supposed end of his life he wants to say, you want to live a life that counts for God? Listen to what I've got to say. Listen to everything that I've just said that I'm going to now summarize and point out to something else. And I believe that there are two things that Paul wants to emphasize. There are two things that Paul wants to say to you this. You, if you want to have a life that counts for God, you should pursue these two things. 
two things that everyone would like to have written on their grave. That's what I believe that it is. That's why I named my message a life of wisdom, a life filled with the Spirit of God. I believe the very first thing that Paul wants you to invest your life, to pursue, is pursue a life of wisdom in God's will. That's the very first thing that Paul is trying to, to, to convey to you. He wants to convince you that that's a good way to go. Pursue a life of wisdom in God's will. So basically what he's saying, everything that I've just said, that's God's, God's wisdom for you. And everything that what I'm going to say is God's wisdom for you as well. So you should apply your life into pursuing this God, this, this wisdom of God in His will. You can clearly see that in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, but as a wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 15 and beginning of verse 17, the calling couldn't be any less, any, any more clear, really. Look carefully how you ought to live, not as unwise, but as wise. Beginning of verse 17 says, therefore, do not be foolish. So it's like Paul is pleading with you and with me. And he's saying, I do not want you to walk through life and be found at the end of it as a foolish person. I think this is a bit of an echo of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking that about the rich man, when his crops yielded a lot, and then he decided to tear down his small barns and big bigger barns and then jesus says what to him foolish man your life is coming to an end today and you are going to be called a foolish man based on what you've been investing your life into so paul doesn't want that to his people so what he's saying is this i want you to live a life that is a life of wisdom this is very clear there now how does that look like? According to Paul here, he's not very complicated at all. Because in verse 17, he makes it very clear that a life of wisdom is a life that understands the will of the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he is very categorical. So if you want to not be foolish... If you want to be wise, you need to know what God wants for your life. Now, just a disclaimer here. This is not, any, this is not a particular wisdom if God wants you to be a doctor or an engineer. Or if you, God wants you to marry person A or person B. Or if God wants you to wear the blue shoes or the red shoes. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is God has a will for mankind. God has a desire, something in his heart that he wants people to know and to live by. So now that can be applied in specific scenarios and should be applying in specific scenarios. But he's not talking about that like, oh, you know, if, oh, if, I, if I only had been a lawyer instead of a, of a doctor, you know, I would be in God's will. That's not the type of God's will that, God, that Paul is talking about here. Is the will that results in working the works of God. 
Whatever you do with your life, however he leads you in your life. I, I believe that what he's saying here is very similar when, when, the, when, when the people approach Jesus and he says, Jesus, what should we do to do the works of God? What should we do in order to be doing or to be on what's God's on about? How do I live a life that counts for God? How do I do this? And John, in John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29, Jesus replies to them, Then they said to, so first, then they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. Step number one of doing the will of God into doing the works of God on this earth is to do, is to work and to believe in who Him has sent. See, that's, that's not a very specific will for anyone. That's a very general will, but that you should apply it individually for you. In order to walk with God in wisdom, you start by fearing him through the preaching of the message of the gospel about jesus there's no wisdom apart from christ he is the one who holds all the treasures of wisdom and the will of god for you is that you would walk with him through his son but having said that, there are many things that God wills for us in general. So, for example, for example you see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 3, that God wills for you to be holy. You see in Micah 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, that God wills you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God wills for you in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, to have a thankful heart. God wills for you in Luke 9, 23, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. So you see, those are things that the human heart not naturally understands, but it is by doing what Paul is saying for them to do that we should understand what the will of the Lord is. Once we find out what it is, we should not waste our time living outside of God's will. That's what says in verse 16, isn't it? Making the best use of time because the days are evil. He is not saying get your degree as early as you can so that you can make enough money. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, once you find out what God's will is for your life, your new life in Christ, you should be applying that will as quick as you can so that you do not waste your time living outside of God's will. Now, as a pastor, I've done, of course, I think my fair share of counseling people in the, in the scriptures and, and they ask all sorts of questions and, and I've done my share of youth ministry as well and uh, we, I think the questions that we have the most I think sometimes are the questions that are very particular to one's life, especially when it comes for teenagers what do I do for uni? They're terrified. Some people are actually terrified of missing out on God's will for their lives. And then that's when, of course, you come with the scriptures and, and, and you counsel them and you guide them and say, hey, listen to this. God's in control of your life. He, he is guiding your life. 
Just focus on loving Jesus, walking with Jesus, getting to know His Word, applying His Word into your life, and do whatever you want to do. Should it be a doctor or an engineer? I don't know what you want to do. Should I marry A or B? I don't know. Who do you want to marry? I want both. No, you can't. That's what I usually say. You've got to choose one. But let me tell you this. The will of God for you is very clear in the Scriptures. Once you find the will of God for you in the Scriptures, just make the most to live it out. That's what pursuing a life of wisdom in God's will looks like. So I believe the first thing you should be asking again, as usual, is have I really believed in Jesus wholeheartedly and I am following him? That's, that's point number one. If you want to live a wise life in God's will, that has to be the first question. What do I do when I see Jesus crucified, paying the penalty for my sins on the cross and rising again three days later, conquering death, ascended into the right hand of the Father? What do I do with that? Am I on board with Jesus' mission? Because I'll tell you what, if you miss out on that, doesn't matter whatever else you do. Doesn't matter if you do like Noble, which gets every single penny from his pocket and gives to charity to promote human goodness. Nothing, that, nothing of that will account to his very own soul. What can a man give for his soul? So the first thing you should be wrestling day in and day out is, am I doing the works of God that are said in John chapter 6? The work of God that you believe in Him. Now, of course, the belief there is not just the intellectual one, but a life-shaping belief. I do not want you to be a Christian who is a functional atheist, right? Because that's not a wisdom according to neither the Old Testament or the New Testament is all about. Wisdom is practical living. And that's what Paul has been arguing through the whole book of Ephesians here. So the next question you should be asking, okay, if I, if I am engaged with following, following Jesus, how, how else do I pursue a life of wisdom in God's will? Now, I think my next point will bring a lot of illustrations for that because he applies it very well how they look like. And the second thing I, I believe that Paul wants you to pursue is to pursue a life filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21 and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is saying, this is... Wisdom is, is now tunneling, and then now this is out, the outcome of wisdom in your very own life. And the first thing we get is a very clear command coming from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Be 
filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And you can see that the being filled with the Spirit is placed in contrast in verse 18 to being filled with wine or getting drunk. I came across this, this meme on Facebook the other day and had, it's like a t-shirt. And in the t-shirt, there was a cup of, uh, like a, a cup of wine, a glass of wine just sitting in there. And, 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 and like a, a, dish, a dictionary definition on of it, so the way how it was written and anything. But um, the, 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 meme, the meme itself was a bit rude, so I, I had my own good version of it here, so I'll, I'll tell you what it is. So it's written like this. So wine, and then in parenthesis, uh, noun, of course, because it's a noun. And then say, the glue holding this 2020 uh, terrible year together. That was the defin that, that, that was the meme on the t-shirt. It is true for most people living in the world today. They are having to because 2020 has been terrible, right? I think we all can agree in many ways, besides a few personal blessings. Pastor John, fantastic. You can enjoy your daughter for a bit longer than what you would otherwise. Uh, for many people, that, this has been a very difficult year. Now, the truth is that, was, that brought up a challenge to people's personal lives that now needs to be overcome somehow. And what do you feel yourself in with in order to enable you to go through the year. And according to this meme, many people chose wine, to which the Apostle Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't do that, because that is debauchery, which means that is going to incur in excessive indulgence in things that will eventually promote terrible things to you. So in order to get through 2020, as a matter of fact, in order to get through any year, what Paul is saying, do not invest into anything else, but be filled with the Spirit. It's an imperative. So Paul is giving you a command. As a Christian, you have no choice. That's not something you think, mm, do I want to do it or not? It's an imperative. It's not only an imperative, but it is a continuous imperative, which means you should do this continuously. Because of the present tense, he uses the verb in. So, so and, and, and by the way, so they, they are already Christians, right? The Ephesians are Christians, and Paul is saying to them, be filled with the Spirit, which then means not every Christian is filled with the Spirit, even though every Christian has the Spirit. It's just like when you read the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, and they're choosing the, the first deacons to be part of the uh, of, uh, of, um to, to, to do the distribution of, of the money between the widows of the church, what, what, what are the, the, the requirements that the, the apostles put? Choose among you men who are filled with the Spirit and wisdom. Why would they say that if every single Christian were filled with the Spirit? That would be a no-brainer. It's like they would say, oh, just choose men filled with wisdom not filled with the Spirit. So Paul is saying that you as a Christian should have a mindset of, 
I have to do this continuously. Having said that, it's also the passive voice, if you've noticed, which is very weird. Be filled with the Spirit. What? It's just like I'm telling to that cup of water that's sitting over there, be filled with water. What can a cup do to be filled itself? It's passive. So Paul gives you a command that you yourself cannot perform. Very weird. But nonetheless, we're going to get to the answer to that, why he does that. But the truth is, that's what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. And then the question you should be asking, how does a Spirit-filled life look like? And the description that comes follow, following that is, I would say, at least at least surprising. I wonder what would be the answer to, or from many Christians when you come around and say, what does a spirit-filled person look like to you? To the Apostle Paul, there are three things that we see very clearly that he's saying there. Spirit-filled people sing. Verse 19, they sing hold wholeheartedly spirit-filled people sing to one another and spirit-filled people sing to god you see that very clearly in verse 19 addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart a spirit-filled person sings. And I always think of that passage in um, Isaiah 6 when I, when I think about this, speaking to one another in hymns and psalms and all of that. Because when Isaiah 6, sees, he sees the, the throne of the Lord and he sees the seraphs flying around the throne and the seraphs are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord oh God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. Um. The truth is, when you read it, the seraphs are not saying this to God. They say it to one another. Not sure if you've never noticed that. When, the sin, when, angels are, when those two angels, particularly that, Jesus, that um, Isaiah said, um, he saw, they're flying around and they're saying those things. They're not saying it to God. They're saying it to one another. A spirit-filled life loves singing, singing to one another, singing to God, making joyful noise with your lips to the Lord. That's why I say a spirit-filled church is a singing church. We sing. We sing because we know of something that happened that it is far more precious than anything that we've ever happened to see in our lives. But not only that... A spirit-filled life also is a life of thankfulness, of giving thanks. And we see clearly said that in verse 20 that was highlighted by Brother John there. Now, the giving thanks is something that it is very... Um, I think no one would disagree that giving thanks is a bad thing, right? Everyone would say, yeah, giving thanks is good. But you can see that the, the, the qualifications he gives to giving thanks make it a little bit more restrict because he says you should give thanks 
always, for everything, to God the Father, in the name of Jesus. So to live a life of thanksgiving is not just you wake up in the morning and you say, thank you, Mother Earth, for the plants. Is that what he's saying here? No, because he's saying that the, the thankfulness that we have, we need to give it to God. So the thankfulness is actually directed to someone else. I really love, um, um, what, I, I really like a few of the apologists that are out there. But um, there is one that I really like, and he, he has this quote that says that, you know what it is the most terrible thing for a scientist atheist? It is that when they encounter those amazing miracles in creation, and they feel that amazement and joy and thanksgiving just coming, just bubbling up because it is just so amazing and, and profound and supreme, but they have no one to thank. No one to thank. You have to, you have, it has to be a shared experience, thanksgiving, between you and God. Otherwise, the, thanks, the thankfulness loses its value. And of course, it has to, you have to do it always. You have to do it for everything. You have to do it in the name of Jesus. Now, for everything here, I'm not saying that you're going to give thanks for the bad things that happen in your life. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that um, Hazel, who suffered an accident, should wait, stand up and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you because I almost broke myself. No. But she should be... There are many things in that situation that she should be thankful for. And lastly, submitting to one another. You see that very clearly in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The actual word there is the fear of Christ, out of the fear of Christ, out of fear of Christ. Now, of course, fear there is not because you are afraid of punishment, but it is that gripping fear that comes when you are at awe as something amazing, big, and majestic, much bigger than you. So it is the fear that should grip your heart when you're standing in the edge of the Grand Canyon. It is the fear you should feel when you encounter something that's far more amazing and majestic that could you, even your thoughts are able to comprehend. So you're coming and meeting the king of the whole universe. The creator of everyone and everything that there is. And then all of a sudden, you are in awe. And in a sense, you were paralyzed. There is nothing that can come out of those lips. The lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That you, would, you wouldn't think straight away, I better do this. Does that make sense? Out of fear 
out of the fear of Christ, you should honor those relationships among you where submission is required from God. That is the decisive thing that comes here at the very end of this section that will be the tone for everything else that Paul is going to preach from here. Submission is not a dirty word. Submission is a godly word. And I know that our natural desire and inclination is to fight against that. Because let me tell you this, every single person in this room, in many moments of their lives, are required to exercise submission in one level. Okay? You're all required. I'm required. Submission is, is part of every single day-to-day -day human living. That's, that's how we function as human society. So Paul is saying, you want to find out a person who is filled with the Spirit? Find a person who doesn't struggle with the word submission. Which means honoring those relationships among you where submission is required from God. Now, there will be a list coming up. We're going to deal with that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about it. But that is a key component of spirit-filled life. So what does that mean? So if, you, if, you, if you're looking at those descriptions and saying, okay, that's a bit different than what I thought maybe a spirit-filled life would look like, according to Paul in this section, how do I live that? If I'm supposed to be filled with this Spirit, but I do not know how to do it, I believe Paul's way of answering that would be, you pray and you ask. When you read the Gospels, and then they culminate, of course, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then you have the Acts of the Apostles following from that, and then you see the mission of the church. And Pentecost comes, they used to, they are, they are baptized in the Spirit. They become Christians. The church is born. Boom, explosion. Peter preaches a message. 3,000 people were saved. And things are off to a good start. Later on, they find some, some, some problems, some persecution arise. And they are like, okay, what do we do now? What do they do? They pray. And what happens? They are filled with the Spirit again. And then you, you, you see that happening again and again in the book of Acts. And you see that every time that happens is a result of intensive and dedicated prayer and asking. And then it all results in missions. There is no mission without being filled with the Spirit. Because that how, that's how God designed for it to happen. So if you want to live a life that it is a life of wisdom, a life that is filled with the Spirit, you have to do it on your knees. 
Prayer cannot be a secondary thing in your life. Prayer cannot be something you do when you need something. Prayer cannot be something you do when you are struggling for something else. Prayer needs to be your breakfast. Prayer needs to be your lunch. Prayer needs to be your dinner. If you don't make prayer, especially asking, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit so that I can live that life of wisdom that Paul is talking about? Let me tell you what. You can put all the effort in the world. You're not going to be able to do it. And that follows into, if you want to, to live that spirit-filled life, that it is a singing life, you need to know this. This is not a singing because you have to. This is not a singing because there are a couple of people up front here that are singing and you better sing as well. That is a heart that, it, that explodes, that bubbles up in song out of the joy of knowing Jesus. Because that's what the work of the Spirit is, isn't it? To reveal Jesus to us, to open our eyes day by day, to see the beauty of the Lord. And that is just a natural response, singing. This, a spirit-filled life will also enable you to become a thankful person. Because I'll tell you what, there is probably a few things that are more difficult than giving thanks always for everything. Because you and I are like the Israelites in the desert. We are naturally inclined to grumble and complain, not to give thanks. That's just a natural pattern of the human heart. So you should develop a thankful heart by asking and praying and pleading with God for God to fuel you with His Spirit, enabling you to do that. And lastly, but not the least, of course, by the power of the Spirit, you should embrace the Christian virtue of being a submissive person. How do all you know if that's something difficult for you? If when I said that phrase, you cringed inside a little bit, you probably struggle with that. But the truth is, we always struggle with that, especially because the relationships that we are required to submit to are relationships that are broken with people who are not perfect. I think for me, the biggest challenge was uh, when I was still living. So I became a Christian when I was 15. So living at home and um, the word of the Lord is clear that I shouldn't honor and submit to my parents but my parents were not really Christians so that was a difficult I'll tell you a difficult path to navigate for me because that was still the will of the Lord for me of course I don't I didn't submit to them in any way shape or form in things that were going to go against the scriptures that's why Paul says very clearly we submit to God, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The basis and the foundation is the fear of Christ to begin with in His Word. So if, 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 if you're in a relationship of submissive, like your, your, your mom or dad or something like that, 
And then that person wants you to do something that is against the will of God revealed in the scriptures. You don't need to obey that. We're going to talk about that later on. But, but apart from that, you should embrace the Christian virtue of being a submissive person. My encouragement is that if you want to have in your grave site those two things, so-and-so was a person who was wise according to God's will. And so-and-so was a person who pursued a life which was filled with the Spirit. That's how you do it. That's the Paul's encouragement to you and to me. And I think there's no better way to finish this but praying and asking that God would do just that, that God would enable us. If anyone's, that's what James says, isn't it? If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask. And the same thing goes here. If you need to be filled with the Spirit, to continue walking by the power of the Spirit, same thing. We did what we just did, which is open the Scriptures and we hear the voice of the Spirit, and now we pray and seek the Lord and ask for us to be filled with the Spirit as well. So let's pray together. Father, our voices are now being lifted out to you according to your word. Paul is very clear that he wants the Ephesians who believed in Jesus to be wise, and we believe that that's also true for us. So I pray in Jesus' name that you would deliver us from walking a foolish life. But that you, we will walk a life that knows your will and that applies your will in daily living. In our work, in our family relationships, in the relationships we've got with our neighbors, and everyone we come across. Father, we also pray. We pray for us to be filled with the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we will be a church that seeks that, that pleads for that feeling of the Spirit continuously, as Paul is encouraging us to do, as a matter of fact, commanding us to do here. May we become a people whose heart is filled with song. May we become a people whose hearts are filled with thanksgiving. And may we become a people who embrace submission as a way to live and to display the glory of the triune God to the whole world. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.